Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla. I'm here with Kristen, and this is an old episode. What? (laughs) (laughs) We're reintroducing one of our favorite episodes that we think deserves a second listen if you've already heard it, and some more attention if you're new to our show. It's our Carbon Offsets episode. It's one of the earlier episodes where we had our regular guest Robert Miller on. And it's a really interesting discussion about how a lot of governments are like, oh, carbon offsets will save us. And the answer is actually like, no, maybe we should pay less attention to that and more attention to just greenifying the grid. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was a really good episode. Um, I think listeners think that too. It's our top downloaded episode most of the time. So (laughs) Um, hopefully people who have not listened to the episode before will really enjoy it. I think we... We cover a lot of ground. That's maybe why it's one of our most listened to episodes. A lot of people don't know what carbon offsets are. We explain that. We explain how you would think about uh, making them good carbon offsets versus ones that maybe don't work so well. And then we, you know, had a very critical, I would say, discussion about whether they're even something that we should do at all. So (laughs) lots to listen to there. And also some really funny things about the Vatican. So everyone, without further ado... (laughs) Enjoy this uh, episode. I guess I'll introduce (laughs) what we're talking about today, which is carbon offsets. And that is the limit of my knowledge on what is happening now from today. You you guys are the (laughs) experts and I didn't do any research at all. So I'm really excited to learn about them. I know that it's a little bit controversial in that maybe they do nothing and yet they're the one thing that governments are trying to do to fix climate change. I don't know. Is that right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, more or less. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be a great contributor to this podcast. Yep. <laughs> Tell me, you guys, are carbon offsets worth it? <laughs> yeah, so there's lots of stuff to pick into on that. I don't know. Robbie, I can explain the basics of carbon offsets, or I don't know if you want to. Yeah, I think it would be okay to let you do that. I do want to, I did want to mention, though, that uh, I did actually look for carbon offsets last time I flew. So I didn't do it as a challenge for this particular podcast, but this is something that I do have a little bit of personal experience with, and I'll tell a story about that later. Okay. Make sure we get to the story. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't let us forget it. But first, you guys are going to explain what carbon offsets are. Not, not for me, because I, I know, but like for, for the listener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So carbon offsets, they're they're things that compensate for the emissions that you produce by financing emissions reducing projects somewhere else. I'll just take an example from a, a Vox article, which I think was sort of helpful. So let's say you are a steel mill and you want to reduce your emissions. You could reduce your emissions by installing zero emissions technology or new hardware that would lower your emissions. But that can sometimes take years and it involves financing. So you could start doing emissions reductions immediately by buying carbon offsets. But we're going to get into all the limitations of that. But basically, the idea is if you don't want to directly reduce your emissions or if you've taken sort of all the low-hanging fruit and you can't easily reduce your emissions and get to carbon neutrality, offsets are a good way to support a project that is reducing emissions somewhere else in the world or if somebody else is doing it so that you can compensate for the emissions that you do produce. 
There are a few different types of projects that are used for carbon offsets. So the one that people probably have heard of is like deforestation prevention. So projects where you're either reforesting, so you're planting lots of trees, or you're preventing a forest from being cut down. Then there are also renewable energy projects and biogas projects. Another really common strain are projects that capture methane. So you could have like uh, a coal mine that is capturing methane in part of its production. And that's uh, that could be a project that you'd be supporting through offsets. And then there are energy demand projects that deal with energy efficiency. And one that you'll often hear there is uh, projects that distribute uh, energy efficient cookstoves. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight something that you sort of like said at the beginning, where there's something that sounds like they should be really simple. It's just I can't cut my carbon emissions anymore, so I'm going to pay you to cut your carbon emissions so that it kind of equals out. And then you actually get into how that's done, and it suddenly becomes an absolute quagmire where very little makes <laughs> yeah. sense, and sometimes it feels like it's fighting against itself. And that's been sort of the trend that I've been seeing as I look into carbon offsets, in addition to just the problems of how do you hold people accountable for that? And then how do you actually even do the accounting to begin with? And so it sounds like a very simple concept that is just an absolute technical quagmire. So <laughs> that's the challenge of carbon offsets, because it should be very simple. I'm going to pay you to reduce your carbon emissions so that I don't have to. And we're going to figure out some kind of way of doing that. And then the devil is in all the little details that come along with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to give people a little bit more context, because um, I think for some people, knowing how much carbon you produce is sort of abstract. I know it is for me. So I'll just give you the typical price of a ton of uh, carbon dioxide emissions is about $12 US um, in US dollars. Uh, that can vary really substantially depending on what the program you're buying from is, but that's sort of like a typical price. And then just to give you some context, if you're taking a flight from Toronto to Vancouver, that's going to generate about 0.6 tons of carbon. And so, yeah, if you're, let's say you're, you're purchasing offsets for one ton of carbon, like that might come out to $12 or depending on the scheme, it might be more than that. Uh, so I, I used a, a calculator to look up my upcoming round trip flight between Ottawa and Edmonton, and it came out to just over one tons of carbon. And the carbon offset that I found was $27 Canadian. So that is slightly more expensive than the average, even when you do take into account the exchange rate with the American dollar, because the American dollar is more valuable than the Canadian dollar. But uh, the one that I found is is a... Uh, it's certified through a good certification. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but that's one of the reasons that the price on carbon offsets might be different. And part of it is just that different projects might cost more. There are some uh, emissions reducing projects that can be very cheap to implement um, and others that are just going to be a bit more costly. And there's also a lot of financial instruments that some of those carbon offsets use. So you might also, especially for projects that are sort of less quantifiable, like forest uh, protection, they have you pay for sort of the ton of carbon that you are reducing and then also a little bit extra because they just assume that some of their projects will fail or not be up to standards. 
So you're kind of paying for like one ton plus however much insurance you also need to pay for. So that's another cause of variability in pricing, especially between different projects in the same category. It might be that you're not paying extra because it's more expensive. You're paying extra because they're actually doing a better job of ensuring that you are actually taking that much carbon out rather than other projects that are just sort of playing a little bit more fast and loose. (laughs) Yeah, and playing it fast and loose with uh, the emissions rules is something that happens a fair bit in the carbon offset market. So I think it is worthwhile. You know, if, if what you're doing is sort of like an altruistic good anyway, just like spend the extra five bucks on a certified one, you know? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, is there a lot of, like, I don't know, false players out there where you're like, oh, here's a carbon offset, and then they don't actually do it? Oh, yeah, lots of that. Oh, no! (laughs) So much of that. (laughs) Um, So I think uh, building the context for that sort of makes sense to talk a little bit about who is using carbon offsets, um, because that kind of shapes, like, if it was just individuals trying to feel morally good about being on a plane, I think you'd probably have higher incentives for all of the projects to be good, but that's not really what a lot of the market is. Yeah, there are sort of two segments of the carbon offsets market. One is the voluntary carbon credits market, and the other is compliance offsets. So the voluntary carbon credits market is about $300 million per year USD, whereas the compliance offsets market is a lot larger and it's somewhere between 40 billion and 120 billion. So a lot of it is coming from businesses that have to meet these emission standards and they're doing it through through offsets basically. Yeah, and it's worth noting that as well huge amounts of probably that compliance market is things like Norway investing massively in it, uh, California is I'm not sure if they've actually passed it or not, but we're looking into basically using California government to certify certain projects so that companies in California could buy offsets in compliance with California's emission standards. Yeah, I think they've got a standard for forests and they're launching one for tropical forests that are outside of North America this year, I think. But yeah, as you mentioned, Norway, it's the world's largest supporter of one of the big Uh, carbon offset schemes called RED. So that's one of the big deforestation ones Um, or reforestation, I guess. RED doesn't support deforestation. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Another thing to note is like within the compliance market, a lot of the companies that are using these offsets are actually the heavy emitters, right? Because it's more difficult for heavy emitters to decarbonize without a fundamental change in their business model. So You'll see it used a lot for sectors like agriculture, aviation, and oil and gas. And in particular, um, I think the average consumer will probably hear about carbon offsets from the airline industry the most often. Yeah, even though, yeah, there are very large projects that are almost entirely industrial. One that I was looking at close to home is the Alberta Carbon Trunk Line Project. And for me, it's emblematic of a lot of the interesting ways that this technology has potential but also one of the ways that it just gets fundamentally confounded by its place in the marketplace. The Alberta carbon trunk line is supposed to be pulling millions of tons of carbon out of oil and gas refineries and agricultural processing plants. The problem that I have with it, though, is that it takes all of that carbon that would be spewed out of oil and gas refineries and agriculture businesses, 
puts it in a pipeline, sends it to old oil fields that are sort of matured, and they use that carbon dioxide to pump more oil out of marginal oil wells. Oh, no, that doesn't solve anything. <laughs> the only way that they can find like a solvent way of selling that carbon dioxide. So that kind of is another one of the issues with a lot of these sort of regulatory regimes is that it's not about removing those emissions, period. It's about removing those emissions from that company's balance sheets. And I think that's one of the really dangerous ways that it's used in the compliance market, because that's not you know, the only example of this. Another really great Canadian project that's received a lot of attention is the Boundary Dam project in Estevan, Saskatchewan. And that is, despite being Boundary Dam, not a hydroelectric plant, it is a coal plant. But they capture all of the carbon directly out of the smokestacks when it's running its 62% energy efficiency or like energy output, they can actually reach 97% carbon capture, which is very cool. The only problem being that they then just sell that carbon as ash to concrete where it's emitted by concrete plants. Oh, and concrete is like one of the worst for emissions, isn't it? Yeah. So Yikes. it becomes an instrument, not necessarily of preventing emissions from coming around, but just sort of cooking the books and cooking the planet at the same time. Yeah, and that's um, that speaks to a problem called leakage. That um, it's one of the things you want to limit if you have a good carbon offset program, um, but definitely not the only one to keep in mind. Um, so I'll just maybe make a quick note that there are a few different, there are a bunch of different kinds of carbon offsets. Some of the ones that people might be the most familiar with are actually ones that are backed by the United Nations. Those tend not to be the ones that consumers are involved with. So you might have heard of the Clean Development Mechanism or Joint Implementation. Those are both through the Kyoto Protocol. And then there's also um, the UN Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation, or RED, uh, which is another UN program. So in addition to those, there are a bunch of other government-run schemes. Uh, Robbie had mentioned one in California, so that's a good example, but there are others as well. And then there are a bunch of private carbon offset companies. So two examples are less and carbon zero. So if you're an individual consumer, you're more likely to be getting an offset through one of those. Do we maybe want to talk about what makes for good carbon offset programs? Yeah. Yeah, I think that would actually be quite interesting because I'm not entirely sure uh, <laughs> how that would even come about, but... Well, I have a suggestion for any carbon offset companies that are listening. If you are capturing so much carbon from smokestacks, especially, why not just blast it into space? Oh, wait, no, that that wouldn't work because they're take that you have to create so much so much carbon to to blast off. Uh, Elon Musk is just taking notes anyway. <laughs> no, no, shooting it at the sun won't work because that takes too much energy, probably. Well, I'm trying. I, I'm an ideas guy. Yeah. The best way is to just bury it in the ground where it came from. Um, yeah. And the like carbon trunk line that I mentioned earlier does do that by injecting it down into old gas wells, which are theoretically airtight. The problem being that they're not just burying it, they're using it to extract more oil. So it's kind of like, just stop at that first step. <laughs> Capitalism's going to capitalism, Robbie. <laughs> uh, yeah, so from a positive point of view, like there is a, a, a justification for carbon offsets in like its abstract form, which is basically that carbon offsets put a price on pollution. 
And that can be a good thing. And it's the justification behind a bunch of other uh, market-based climate policies like carbon taxes. Some of the main problems come in when carbon offsetting doesn't adhere to good principles of uh, carbon offset policy, though. So some of the principles that uh, carbon offsetting schemes should accomplish include additionality, third-party verification, permanence, avoiding leakage, social and environmental safeguards, and offset limits. And, and we'll maybe dig into each of those. Um, so had either of you um, come across the, the topic of additionality before or have a sense of what that means? No. <laughs> um, I think it's really cool. Um, the, the issue with a lot of those carbon offsets is that they depend on the baseline. So when you're crafting a carbon offset, you have to say, okay, the baseline emissions from this thing is X amount of carbon. You're going to pay us to do something to change that baseline and get it lower. So depending on what the baseline is, you are either going to have a very effective carbon offset program, or you're not going to have any carbon offsets whatsoever. And the problem then becomes, how do you separate your carbon offsetting project from this sort of like baseline reductions that were going to be happening because of other regulations, because of market changes, because of all of these different fluctuating ways that our production of carbon might shift over the course of a project, completely unrelated to the fact that you're doing your particular thing. Or at least that's how I understood additionality. Yeah. And it's like, it's really hard to, to say, right? Even if you're somebody that's trying really earnestly, which is not always the case with these projects, uh, like knowing whether something would have happened anyway, or if the revenue that's going into carbon offset, carbon offsetting is actually supporting a new decarbonization effort can be kind of tricky to say. But it's also like the most important thing when you're looking at how good a carbon offsetting project is. If it's not an additional measure, then it's kind of bullshit, uh, to be really frank. <laughs> and it has been scammed quite aggressively. There was one case in the Congo where their baseline that they were using was another region quite far away that was in the middle of like the intersection of several major highways and logging camps. And they used that as the baseline level of deforestation in the Congo rainforest. <laughs> and then they basically charged people to like get less than that uh, rate of deforestation, which was automatic. Like your carbon offsets actually did absolutely nothing because <laughs> at the real baseline deforestation in the region was already so low that, especially compared to the baseline, it had no impact. I think there was also a, a scam in Madagascar that used the same the same problem. Yeah, and actually, like deforestation projects and like tree planting tend to be the easiest ones to get additionality. So like the fact that it's a problem, even in those instances is, uh, it, it sort of just highlights the extent to which carbon offsets are kind of a minefield to begin with. But like one of the problems is if you're doing something like a clean energy project, a lot of the times governments already have policies to subsidize that or to provide sort of like certificates for using renewable energy or other kinds of incentives for businesses to do that. So if you have a carbon offset project for that, it's really hard to establish additionality because in a lot of cases, the incentives are there for that project to have taken place already. So in general, there's sort of like a suggestion that clean energy projects are less likely to be additional. So if you're looking for high, if you're looking for something to be as additional as possible, 
you probably want to steer clear of that. Um, but even sticking to some of the projects like um, reforestation or energy efficiency doesn't guarantee that it's additional either. Yeah. And the additionality of the forest examples is also very much involved with how it's measured. There was one really interesting example from one of the flagship projects in Brazil where they were using satellites to measure how much forest was still there to like, you know, make sure that they're being accountable to the project objectives. But they were using satellite data that had a resolution of like a kilometer, basically. So they weren't actually protecting the forest because loggers knew that. And so they would just go in and they would selectively cut trees. But according to the satellite data, there was still forest there. And so there was just all of these issues with actually doing that accounting, especially when you're project like protecting very remote areas. And so you're relying on a certain level of technological aptitude that just wasn't there, as well as a level of enforcement that might also not be there. That if you're trying to prevent illegal logging in the middle of the Amazon, you might just be kind of hooped. And your project <laughs> might just fail because there isn't the institutional protection of those forests, whether that's by design, like the Bolsonaro government, or by <laughs> simple neglect and issues around conflict. There's another really interesting example in Cambodia where it was because of conflict that they couldn't actually go in to measure. And you're like, well, what are you actually paying for then? Yeah, for sure. And there's actually a study that I found um, that looked at a bunch of the red projects, so the, the uh, deforestation projects that the UN backs, and they found that 37% of those overlapped with existing protected lands like national parks. So like those are areas where you shouldn't be deforesting anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But yeah, Robbie, you make a really good point. And this is sort of goes to the second principle that if you're going to have a good carbon offsetting project, it needs to be measurable and there needs to be third party verification. But the, it's sometimes a lot harder to actually get good measurement depending on what the project is, you know? No, and that even applies to like energy efficiency ones. Like I always think about that cook stove example where they're saying, oh yeah, you're offsetting X amount of emissions by providing people with cook stoves and uh, liquid petroleum gas to fuel them. But that assumes that those families are using it 100% of the time, that the supply line for that gas is sufficient and adequate. And if you can't actually guarantee that they are always using these stoves and aren't still using wood and coal and biomass, then you haven't really been able to demonstrate that you're fully reaching the potential of that project. And anything that involves, especially consumer level use, is going to fall afoul of that. Yeah. And the other thing is that like, the, the logistical challenges of measurement, like even assuming that you can overcome those, in some cases, measurement is going to be a lot more expensive than in other cases. And that might not necessarily mean that the project is less valuable. So that becomes this huge problem in a market-based scheme like carbon offsetting because the market's going to go towards lower price carbon offsets, which are going to be more likely for like the methane capture projects where you just have to put up a sensor than like a deforestation project where you have to have high quality satellite imageries or the cook stove ones where you have to sort of look at the usage over time, things like that. Yeah, there's a whole other problem with just the financialization of it in terms of, yeah, if everyone is looking for the cheapest, it's going to run afoul of all certification schemes that 
companies with more permissive certification will be chosen more often than those with more stringent certification, even though that means that you're not actually making a difference. Yeah, as long as that's not something that consumers are strongly demanding or that businesses are strongly demanding, for sure. So the next thing that you want to have in a carbon offsetting scheme is permanence, which basically means if you reduce the carbon within the project, is it going to stay sequestered or is it going to eventually go back into the atmosphere, right? That tends to be one of the critiques of reforestation offsetting efforts, that like forests could end up being cut down or destroyed before the emissions reductions are actually generated. And that's a big thing because if you cut down a tree before 100 years, all of that carbon gets released into the atmosphere and it's as though you've done nothing, basically. Yeah. Um, That 100-year cycle is actually quite important because carbon will naturally sort of like come out of the atmosphere after about 100 years. That's its half-life in the atmosphere. So you need to have a tree up for at least that long to say that you've actually kept it out of the atmosphere. So I don't know anything about trees, it turns out. Um, does the carbon just sit inside the tree and then you cut it down and then it comes out? Or is that basically it? It's incorporated into the biomass of the tree. So it's sort of like in the trunk and leaves and roots and everything like that. So if you cut it down and turn it into a house, that carbon is still sequestered. But if you cut it down and burn it, that carbon is not. It's actually one of the interesting critiques of forest reforestation, like reforestation as a carbon sink. Because more, st- more carbon can actually be stored in the soils of certain ecosystems than in the body of a tree. And the rainforest actually has notoriously thin soil. And it's one of the reasons why they're constantly cutting down the Amazon is because the soil is only usable for a few years after it's been clear cut for agricultural purposes. So they need to be constantly creating more agricultural land to compensate for the declining quality. And so it might actually be better to, for instance, prevent agricultural expansion in northern Alberta, where the soil is much deeper and actually holds carbon on a much longer timescale. The other problem of permanence is one of the my favorite, most interesting, by which I mean most terrifying and disturbing <laughs> facts that I talk about when I'm talking about climate change, which is that Canada's forests, for instance, have been net carbon emitters since 2001. And so if we're replanting forests, but we've already started to hit climate tipping points where forests are dying back, being killed by pests or burning, those aren't things that a deforestation scheme that pays people not to cut them down can prevent. It's not as though we're going to also be paying for firefighters to keep the forests from burning down or pest control initiatives to prevent them from being destroyed by other means. And so we need to be plausibly certain that that tree is going to stand for at least 100 years. And based on climate projections and the way that the earth is already changing, there are very few places where that's actually true. And so in addition to the immediate accounting issues and immediate accountability problems, there's also the, is this actually an appropriate mechanism in a changing climate? I'm, I'm still kind of... That that statistic you just gave kind of stunned <laughs> me. Our forests are carbon emitters since 2001? Yes. Um, that's based on data from the National Resource Council of Canada. Uh, it's freely available online. I actually, I found out about it because I was fact-checking a far-right 
lunatic who was harassing people at the Greta March. And uh, yeah, so I looked up. It's like, how much carbon is actually sequestered every year by Canada's forests? Because, you know, the loonies always claim that Canada has so many forests that we're probably a net carbon sink. And it turns out that in 2016, it was something like 60 gigatons of carbon was incorporated into Canada's forests and 90 gigatons was emitted into the atmosphere because of forest dieback, forest fires, and conversion to agricultural land. What? Yeah, so it's not even like it's only marginally an emitter. It varies quite a bit year to year. Like There are several years where it was a fairly marginal emitter, and that makes sense because if you're thinking about a biological process, forests are constantly growing and dying simultaneously. So they actually sequester carbon very slowly because it's only new growth. So anytime that a forest reaches maturity, it largely goes into an equilibrium of growth and death happening simultaneously. So it does incorporate quite a bit of carbon, but it also emits quite a bit as just old trees decay, as sort of like leaves rot and things like that. And so, yeah, most years carbon or Canada's forests are kind of marginal sinks or marginal emitters. But since 2001, they have always been either marginal emitters or in the case of 2016, where there were large forest fires and land use conversions, uh, quite significant emitters. Like Canada's emissions are somewhere in the realm of like 700 gigatons a year. Uh, Robbie, did you look at the um, figures for 2017 and 2018? Uh, the last time I looked, those were not available. That's why I was referencing 2016. No, no, for sure. I just, I would bet because... Because um, of the forest fires. Yeah, I've because of my emergency management research, I've looked at um, the evacuation figures, which not the same thing, but um, can give you some indication of how bad the forest fires have been. And like prior to 2016, we had forest fires, but it was only sort of like sporadically would you have really bad forest fire years. And basically since 2016, pretty much every year has been... Uh, a worst ever or significantly above average forest fire year for at least one of the major provinces. So I would imagine if you look more recently that it's not even that we're marginal emitters anymore. It's that every year uh, the forests are burning and that that's emitting carbon. Yeah, that's terrifying. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, oh, they do have the 2017 2017 data is out. Yeah, 2017 was another really bad year. Yeah. And that was um, probably from the BC wildfires, which were actually worse in 2018. So <laughs> not good news. <laughs> not good news. Well, that's all the information I need. I'm going to go lie down. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it's quite bad. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we are Ooh. fucked. I just looked it up. Uh, yeah, you can find it. National Resource Council of Canada has a has a whole thing. How does disturbance shape Canada's forests? And yeah, it's uh, it's actually not because of forest fires. There was a big jump, but it's largely because of uh, insect destruction. Oh, because like the pine beetles and whatever. Yeah. Huh. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So that is one of the things as well that I think doesn't get talked about enough when we're looking at forest protection in particular is that it's like 
how does this fit in a warming world? Do we actually, can we actually be confident, even if we had all of the current up-to-date measuring and accounting that we would need to have? Yeah. And the other pro- problem with um, deforestation projects for offsets is that issue of leakage, right? So part of what you don't know if you're saying, if you're, say, paying uh, an indigenous group in like Brazil, not to cut down a rainforest in a given area, you don't necessarily know that that's not going to be offset uh, by increased logging somewhere else, you know? Yeah, you're just pushing it somewhere else. And yeah, it's, I think, one of the major issues as well. But it's also impossible, right? I don't know (laughs) how anyone would be able to deal with that. Isn't this a major talking point in politics right now? Is 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 carbon offsets as as a climate change function? Like is that or or am I confusing that with something else? Well, I think um it's carbon offsets can be part of a carbon pricing scheme depending on how it's set up. So there's I guess the short answer is yes, that's part of what pol- politicians are are talking about when they talk about market-based solutions to climate change. Yeah. And it is worth noting that like forest protection is not the only carbon offset mm-hmm. that's yeah. being proposed. It's just one of the ones that I think has got the longest history. Yeah. So the other thing that you want a carbon offset project to have is social and environmental safeguards. So basically you want to have safeguards that ensure even if the project is doing really good, a really good job on carbon reduction, that it's not also harming communities or undermining other environmental objectives while it's doing that. A couple examples that I found of this. Um, so there was a wind farm project that it basically displaced a bunch of local farmers, causing harm to the community. And at the same time, it didn't generate the amount of power that it had promised that it would do. So it's sort of dually creating these harms for the society that it was impacting, even though maybe it was really effective in sequestering carbon, right? There's a similar example with uh, a green dam project that was done in Guatemala. And essentially, because there was a lot of disagreement from the surrounding indigenous community, they didn't want the dam to go up and they were protesting it. There were six people in that community that were killed as a result of um, trying to defend their land, and two of them were actually children. So those are examples of the kinds of social harms that you can have if you're not careful with carbon offsetting projects. Yeah, that's actually a really grim example. Yeah, (laughs) it's not great. No. And I mean, one of the ways that I think this can be done quite well in terms of ways that we can look at carbon offsets is to make them indigenous-led. One of the interesting criticisms that I found, or sort of like almost opportunities that was presented in a report from C4, the Center for International Forestry Research. The Center for International Forestry Research actually proposes that as one of the sort of ways that especially red projects, the deforestation protection ones, can really be amplified, is that by making sure that it's not just buying the land and holding in a corp in a corporate trust, but buying the land and returning it to indigenous communities. And of course, there are examples where that doesn't work out so well, because there are other economic pressures on those communities. But generally, it follows along with both a more socially equitable way of doing climate reduction projects, 
but also generally does result in better outcomes, specifically because you have a community that is already willing to protect those forests and who understand the sort of social and cultural value of them in addition to their environmental value. And so that helps you to generally have better projects is when they are combined with other social justice lenses, like giving the land back and recognizing indigenous tenure over land. Yeah, we'll always do that as a shout out that one of the best climate change strategies is just giving the land back. Yep, <laughs> we could be doing that today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think what I'd like to do is um, to talk about some of the common critiques that we hear about carbon offsets. And, and the first one is like, phrased kind of dramatically, but like, is this all a scam? <laughs> that was my question going in. <laughs> so thoughts, Robbie? <laughs> so I feel like scam is a per very particular way of describing it, but I've recently been leaning a lot on Murray Bookchin. Um, I've become one of those environmentalists. <laughs> and one of the things that he points out is that one of the major challenges for technological solutions to any social problem, but in particular, the climate crisis, is that the solutions that work for average everyday people are not the solutions that are going to be getting the most attention and attract the most interest under the capital, like under a capitalist system. The solutions that are going to be most attractive are those that are most attractive to capital and capital's interests don't always align with it. There was actually, and in line with this sort of basic criticism of market-based solutions in general, was the Stockholm Environmental Institute in its sort of like guide to purchasing offsets recognizes that carbon offsets might actually be a negative for the environmental movement, specifically because it creates a market and like very powerful market forces for stopping government regulation. Because if governments simply regulate stricter carbon emissions, then the baseline for all of those projects gets worse, which means that they can't sell as much credits, which means they make less money. And so you are actually creating a sort of parallel environmental, and I'm doing that in air quotes, <laughs> environmental protection thing that is going to actively lobby against stronger government regulations. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and like, and that's a thing that the the Stockholm Environmental Institute, which promotes carbon offsets, like this is their guide for responsible carbon offsetting, that is noting this claim. It's like even its proponents can recognize that it's like, yeah, the market has fundamental failures in terms of its ability to provide this service. Yeah, I just think it's so interesting if you like think about that critique in the context of like the history of carbon offsets and the fact that. Like offsetting really was meant to be part of an intergovernmental scheme. And it was it was supposed to be something that represented intergovernmental cooperation. And now it's become this sort of like very fragmented global market with definitely some UN-backed schemes, but they're all sort of following these market principles and that in some cases may make it more difficult for governments to act. It's sort of I mean, we know the international climate system is like fraught, but <laughs> I did not ever thought about it in that way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yikes. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, when people refer to it as a scam, it's not just that, you know, the market has basic failures to provide certain things sometimes, but also, yeah, I think 
we talked about this quite a bit when whenever you would raise, this is how you do it properly. And then we would have these disturbing and terrifying examples of projects that went ahead, that collected a great deal of money, and then just failed catastrophically in very predictable ways. Well, and there are also just straight up examples of fraud. <laughs> like, yeah. there are projects that never get carried out at all. Like, I mean, this was a lot more common in the like early 2000s. It's a little less common now because there's a bit more robustness. But in 2007, the Vatican claimed to be the first sovereign country to be carbon neutral. And they did this largely through a forestry project that I think was in Hungary. But basically, it was supposed to create this forest on a plot of land to be enough to offset their emissions for a year. And they paid for it. And no trees got planted. So <laughs> they just kind of got duped. Uh, <laughs> so that does happen sometimes. Uh, um, th this is an especially hilarious example because when people do talk about it as a scam, one of the other sort of like scammy tendencies that it has, and this is especially ironic given that example from the Holy See, is that carbon offsets are basically indulgence payments for our climate sins. I actually have that same note um, where I'm talking <laughs> about indulgences and I say, I think it's really funny that the Vatican also got duped by this <laughs> when trying to buy indulgences. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of that karma of uh, you're finally hoisted by your own petard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so it, carbon offsets, there are not as many that are like openly fraudulent in the sense that they say they're going to plant trees and they never plant any. The Vatican just got lucky on that one. Well, it was just in the early 2000s that did straight up just happen a lot, but it became a scandal. And so now schemes are kind of at least a little bit better at dealing with it. But even so, emissions reductions are overestimated in about 85% of offsets projects. And only 2% of projects have a high likelihood that they'll be both additional and that they won't have their offsets overestimated. Thanks. I hate it. <laughs> yeah. You pretty much guarantee that if you're buying an offset, it's not sequestering as much carbon as you think. Damn. Where did you find that? Uh, it's a group called OCO Institute. They do um, like sustainability standards. Yeah. I, I've linked to it. I'll put it up in the research notes so people can check it out. Because that's, that's striking. Yeah. That you have a less than 2% likelihood if you're investing in a project that it's it's actually good. Foof. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Yeah, like that, if that statistic is, is accurate, then I guess we can end the episode because carbon offsets suck and that's, <laughs> that's the takeaway. <laughs> oh, but there's so much more that we can talk about, about why they suck. Yeah, I want to talk more about moral hazard and the issue of indulgences. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Yeah. I'll maybe just start by explaining why they're like indulgences or why that's been said in case that was not a point that listeners had come across. So just in case people don't have this context, the Catholic Church used to do this thing where they would sell indulgences that were basically like a get out of sin free pass. But not for free. But yeah, it was very much not free. <laughs> So sorry, yeah, it was a, a get out of sin for money <laughs> if you're rich uh, pass. And that was actually one of the things that prompted the Protestant Reformation. So it was a big fucking deal at the time. And so the argument that carbon offsets are like indulgences is basically that 
it basically that it produces moral hazard, right? That it persuades us we can go on polluting to the extent that we do. And if we like pay for a tree planting project somewhere else in the world, that that'll be okay. I, I found a cheeky website that's called Cheat Neutral, and it pokes fun at carbon offsets by basically, I don't think it's actually a real thing, but the idea is it allows you to be infidelity neutral by uh, funding someone else to be faithful for you. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the basic critique. Um, and there have been some, like, I think, reasonable points that this is maybe as funny as it is, maybe not such a great comparison. So there's a, an article by David Roberts at Grist that basically says, I'll just quote from him. If there really were such a thing as sin, and if there was a finite amount of it in the world, and if uh, it was the aggregate amount of sin that mattered rather than any individual's contribution and indulgences really did re reduce aggregate sin, then indulgences would have been perfectly sensible. So, like, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and it, but the issue with that is that, like, does it actually cause aggregate reductions in emissions only if you can guarantee that all of that carbon comes out of the ground or comes out of emissions and stays out of those emissions, which, based on everything that we've said so far, is the issue. Yeah. And the other thing is that we actually need to be reducing our emissions and carbon offsets can't do that structurally. At best, all they can do is cancel out emissions that have already been produced. Yeah. One of the interesting lines that I saw in regards to it is that net zero means net zero for everyone. Um, and you can't just do that by shuffling carbon around to different places. And in terms of that sort of like... Um, that critique of the indulgence argument, it also just assumes that some of these projects aren't just greenwashing. Yeah, that's true too. Even it, it may be in a company's best interests to buy carbon offsets simply so that they can say that they are a sponsor of such and such project to give them, you know, green bona fides without actually solving the issue. And especially if these carbon emissions are, or sorry, uh, carbon offsets are as porous in terms of actually reducing emissions as they might be, this is sensible and very much becomes a sort of corporate indulgence market where you're just buying green credentials without actually reducing emissions. Yeah, like I watched a, a BBC documentary looking at the airlines industry. And one of the, the points that they use, so Ryanair is trying to position itself as a green airline which I think is a fascinating argument because, I mean, by virtue of the fact that they cram everyone together, it kind of is maybe more green than other airlines. This <laughs> is a really good spin move. For listeners who are not familiar with Ryanair, it is the budget airline um, in Europe, and it sucks. It sucks so hard. At a certain point, they, they tried to sell, like, standing-only tickets. <laughs> God, that would be miserable. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Ryanair maybe has kind of a weird point that they they might be a greener airline because everybody's crammed together so much, but they've tried to also augment that view by planting some trees and buying carbon offsets in Ireland. And this BBC investigation basically tore it apart, and they were like, "Look, the amount of carbon offsets you're buying, like it accounts for like 0.001 percent of your overall emissions." And if you wanted to actually plant trees to offset your annual emissions, you would have to plant enough trees to cover 12% of the UK. 
So I'm in favor of that. <laughs> yeah, but that's just Ryanair's emissions is 12% of the UK. Um, and in one year. Yeah. And so, yeah, every year Ryanair would have to reforest 12% of the UK to offset its emissions, right? Which is very rapidly they would run out of land to forest. <laughs> this is so fucking depressing, you guys. I <laughs> this might be one of the saddest episodes I, we've done yet. And we just did the fishing industry. Oof. <laughs> yeah, the fishing industry is But fortunately, carbon offsets are not like necessary. I think this goes back to sort of the original conception of carbon offsets as a, you know, government scheme is that one of the things I honestly find most depressing about carbon offsets is so much of this is just stuff we should be doing anyways. And so we've, we've tried to sort of like get out of real climate action by trying to make it voluntary. And I think that's the fundamental failing of carbon offsets, but is also why I mostly just find them funny and ridiculous is because, you know, all of these problems that we have with carbon offsets do not mean that we can't solve the climate crisis. It just means that this particular tool is some kind, sometimes kind of funny and sometimes kind of silly. And it's also like you don't have to use capitalism to solve every single problem we have in society, honestly. <laughs> no, shocking. Like there's this, there's this, um, this approach to social welfare reform that basically does the same thing. It's basically just carbon offsets, but for the welfare state. And it's the same sort of like the same sort of shit. You could, you could map the same critiques onto it. Um, like we know that just spending more money on preventative social policies is a good thing, you know, keep kids in families, don't let people be homeless. But there's this mechanism called a social impact bond that has been used to basically like wily coyote government where they've got this complicated system of investments and they measure like these outputs and like uh, <laughs> trying to determine whether something's effective. And it's like just more money for banks and for like the various groups that are bidding on these projects when like any social studies expert would tell you it's obvious what you need to do already. And it's the same thing, I think, with carbon offsets. Like, I don't know why we're... Anyway, rant over, but it just makes me so mad. Well, I don't think you need to be an expert to think those no, things either. True. Like, I, I came into this episode with a very vague idea of what a carbon offset was and still was like, I don't think they work. You know what I mean? Like, One of the... I'm referencing here the C4 report that I mentioned earlier, because they also made another interesting argument in support of sort of the reasons why carbon offsets might look as ridiculous as they do is just in comparison to other things. So annually, something like 30, uh, a very small amount of money actually goes into forest protection through these schemes like RED. And when I say very small, I mean that especially in contrast to the subsidization of industries that are destroying the forests. So it's something like $40 billion a year in government subsidies go to cattle farming and uh, palm oil production, which dwarfs the sort of like, I think it's $300 million annually that goes into forest protection. So maybe one of the reasons why carbon offsets look so ridiculous and so rinky-dink is just because no one is 
genuinely spending money on them, um, especially not in <laughs> comparison true. to the things that are destroying the forests. So if we wanted to actually create social change, maybe we need to be spending at least as much on carbon offsets as we are on the other things, or we need to just stop subsidizing them so heavily. It's one of the same reasons why like recycling sucks is because, yeah, it's actually quite economical to recycle plastic unless you're subsidizing oil and gas to the tune of billions of dollars a year, in which case the raw feedstocks for new plastics are just so mind-bogglingly cheap that it's impossible for recycling to price compete, especially without those same levels of subsidies. And so maybe that's the saving grace of carbon offsets. Maybe they would actually work really well if we weren't living in a system of massive subsidies for climate destruction. But I also don't see why you need a market mechanism for a lot of this stuff, right? Like if you pull down to, if you think about what these projects are, right? Like the reforestation projects and deforestation projects, governments could plant trees. That was a thing the liberal government promised to do. Like you don't need a market for that. You can also just set rules about deforestation. You don't need a market for that. Giving people clean cook stoves. You can do that. You don't need a market for that. Like, there's nothing inherent to the projects that are being done that makes me believe that a market mechanism would be more effective. What we really need is like more robust government regulation, uh, in addition to like more social spending and spending that pushes in the direction of decarbonization. Yeah, I mean, the real answer to the climate crisis is just socialism. Um, as I think <laughs> I said in the last the last time I was on this podcast, I think I said the exact same thing. You did, you did, and I I forgot to introduce you properly at the top of the episode. So now an hour <laughs> in, I'll just say that <laughs> I mean you're basically Madonna. You don't you don't have a last name, you don't have a title, um, but you are a climate <laughs> activist. This is the sort of thing that you think about all the time. So people can trust you when you say like this stuff doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, I don't even know if carbon offsets don't work. Like, one of the issues that I have approaching this topic is that according to the IPCC's models, not their report, we already passed 1.5 degrees. Like, most IPCC models are in agreement that we hit that threshold in, like, 2013. And the IPCC models are famously conservative. Yeah. Uh, and the reports take their conservative models and editorialize them to be even more conservative. And so it's like, to a certain extent, like we need carbon sequestration. Like we literally just, we need to start pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. At this point, even if we went carbon neutral, we still need to do that. And so for me, like that's what I think of when I think of carbon offsets in their ideal form would be literally companies that are being forced to pay into not just making themselves net zero, but literally paying to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. If things get bad enough, is that something you think we'll see? I don't know. Um, it's also because it's like, it's not a technology that is particularly well proven. And so it, it's kind of an open question of whether or not we even can do that. And there are a lot of harms associated with a lot of the um, methods for it. Yeah. And it's also like we would need to be pulling it out very quickly and none of it could go back into the atmosphere. We would have to take all of that carbon we pulled down and just bury it. So it really is sort of like a, 
massive undertaking that if we can't even, you know, create a carbon offset market that functions, I'm not sure how we would as a society move that forward unless we just radically commit to saving the planet, which we should be doing. In which case, (laughs) why do you need a market? (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I did want to give people some tips because I think we can critique carbon offsets for being sort of like janky and for not being a good solution to climate change. But as an individual consumer, it's not like you're being evil by buying carbon offsets. Like on the margins, if you have to take a flight somewhere or do something that, like if you can't reduce your carbon emissions anymore, then yeah, a carbon buying a carbon offset can be a tool in your toolkit. So I, I wanted to talk just a little bit about how to find a good one. So the main thing to do is just to make sure that the carbon offset you're buying is adhering to a respected certification standard. So making sure that whatever offset you're buying has been externally validated by some third party to determine that it's actually offsetting as much as they say it's offsetting. (laughs) That they're not just taking your money and then not planting any trees. Yeah, So a couple of good ones that you can use are the voluntary gold standard, or sometimes you'll just see it as the gold standard. It's the one that the David Suzuki Foundation recommends that you use. Another good one is the voluntary carbon standard, and it's another sort of very widely used one. Those are both good options. I'll also, I've got a list of other ones that I'm not going to mention here, but if you want to go to the research note, you can find those as well. And I'll actually, I can jump in on this one too. Um, and this relates to the story that I was going to tell right at the beginning of the time that I tried to buy carbon offsets. Oh, yeah. It worked out perfectly. <laughs> um, because I was trying to do the research. And honestly, it is quite onerous. One of the problems with sort of determining which standards are actually worth their salt is just that it's all kind of a bit of a black box. And so I talked to a friend of mine who I consider to sort of be a mentor of environmental movement. He's been in this fight for like twice as long as I've been alive. Someone whose input I generally trust. And his point was actually to just ignore all of that certification stuff and instead look very locally. Because there are, you know, organic and local farms where maybe they don't have the resources to be able to quantify how much emissions you are preventing. But if you go to a local organic farm and say, what can you do with this amount of money that I would be spending on one of these sort of corporate market schemes? And they can tell you how many trees they would plant or other mechanisms that they would have. And so maybe instead of trying to like exist in this highly quantifiable world where you can say, I you know, emitted 1.1 tons of carbon, and so I need to buy exactly 1.1 tons of carbon, is just to look at it and say, what can I do in my community to further environmental objectives using that money instead? So instead of giving $50 to Air Canada's corporate scheme for carbon offsetting, take that $50 and donate it to a local climate movement. Uh, Donate it to an organic farm in your area so that they can upgrade some of their tools to use less fossil fuels. Uh, especially when we look at the impact of basic development goals on carbon emissions, that making sure that people can actually access alternatives is a great way to do it, that you don't need to be giving your money to an NGO halfway across the world to give cook stoves to people in poverty 
you can help people meet their sort of like carbon offset goals here directly in your community. And then, yeah, you can't say it's certified gold standard, but you can have that sort of direct accountability of, I know the person that I donated it to, I know the project that they did with my money. And even if I don't know exactly how much carbon I actually prevented, I know that I made an impact. Yeah, I, I think that's, so if you, if you don't have a lot of time that you want to put into this, going with certifications is kind of like, it's a knee-jerk way that you can make sure there's some validity. But I do agree with you that broadly, if you're going to buy something like a carbon offset, it has a similar moral position to donating to an NGO or to a charity. You can think about it as a donation. So yeah, maybe try to find a local initiative. One thing that you might want to focus on is trying to pick something that could transform uh, society towards decarbonization. So where not only is there a direct impact, but that in the long run, it'll have reverberations that can help us get to where we need to go. It's like if you donate to a charity that's lobbying for stronger regulations, like who knows, your donation could end up reducing by vastly more than if you had done something. Or it could also result in nothing, and that's kind of the gamble you take. Um, but in case the last hour hasn't made it obvious, even if you're <laughs> donating to a very well-vetted carbon offset program, then you might also accomplish nothing. So maybe in the balance of risk, it is better to go for the more socially transformative, less quantifiable, less um, monetary way of doing it. Yeah. And I'll also add that like, there's an additional benefit if you choose to donate to an advocacy group, because especially in Canada, those groups have a really hard time getting money. The, the systems that we've set up around institutionalizing nonprofits and charities make it so that if you're a group that advocates for social change, you really don't have a lot of the same institutional sources of funding. And of course, if you're advocating for something like climate change, you're not going to have the corporate social sources of financing that an offsetting project is going to have. So your money is going to be more needed in those projects anyway. One actually really cool project happening in Alberta, because I mentioned the carbon trunk line and how ridiculous it is. But there are <laughs> genuine made in Alberta things that are actually making a bigger difference. And one of them is that the prairies are looking at 50% of land changing hands in the next two decades as sort of like older family farms uh, can't pass it on to their children and are eventually sold. And the way that trends are looking, almost all of that land is going to be gobbled up by large agribusiness which generally speaking has very bad histories in terms of carbon emissions from agriculture. And so there's a project out of Camrose to literally just buy land and turn it into a cooperative farm so that it doesn't fall into the hands of big agribusiness. And again, that's not going to give you a quantifiable carbon emission, but actually does create that sort of socially transformative change. And maybe we should be less obsessed with measuring things. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we can just measure less and do more. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so it's the same thing that one of the ways that you can look is just like donating to land defenders, donating to cooperative farms that are trying to buy land away from big agribusiness, donate to like keep small farms alive is enough to maybe offset some of your carbon emissions. And if you are going to donate, 
The best way usually is to donate on a monthly basis. So there is a regular source of income that's coming in for that group that they can count on. And uh, don't restrict your donation. Restricting your donation is really bad for efficiency. Yeah. And just um, for anyone who's new to donating, uh, restricting means like don't tell them where they have to spend it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I like to donate to animal charities and sometimes they'll give you the choice like, oh, do you want your money to go towards food or blankets or or what what kind of stuff would you like your money to go towards? I'm like, no, 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 no. You just you just have it and then you can you can spend it on what you think (laughs) is most important. So. Yeah, it's honestly just like, I mean, I think this goes to our measuring obsession a little bit, but like the more we try to place those boundaries in the aims of efficiency, the more we actually undermine efficiency because now we're asking these groups to, you know, do all these other reporting things that have nothing to do with the goal they're trying to accomplish. Anyway. Well, and if everybody's <laughs> restricting their money, it, yeah, it's hard to buy a, like a a computer system if everybody wants the funding to go towards like uh, feeding goats or something. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Robbie, do you want to? Do you have a call to action for people? <laughs> I think last time, sorry, I think last time you told everybody to join uh, a community for the climate, and then immediately after we released it, the pandemic started, and no one could join anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's been such a struggle oh my god so much has happened since we last had you on i can't even yeah 2020 has been a hell of a year um i think it is actually just this sort of last section that Kristen and i have been talking about is please donate to something to do carbon offsets uh, that's local or certified whatever is more comfortable to you and uh Yeah, that's kind of the call to action is in particular to the episode. The general call to action, of course, is um, right now when we are recording this in sort of middle of June, I think the most important thing that we can be doing for the climate is fighting for racial justice. So if if that hasn't been fixed by the time this episode comes out, uh, which is highly unlikely, you mean if structural racism hasn't been fixed by like mid July? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, please make sure that those organizations are still getting the help they need, the funding that they need, and the support from you that they need. Nice. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> We're actually recording this on June 19th. So Oh yeah. 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 Happy Juneteenth. Juneteenth, so. everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Do do we say happy for Juneteenth? I, d- I don't know. I probably not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Joyous Juneteenth at least is an alliteration. But. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Robbie. Well, where can people find you if they want to follow? They want to follow your, your, your climate activism. That's such a good question. <laughs> um, you can follow Extinction Rebellion Edmonton. Um, I'm periodically on their Twitter but mostly, yeah, follow someone in your community who's doing good work. Yeah. Look in your nearest bridge and Robbie will be there. <laughs> Blockading <laughs> well, it. Well, one just got royal assent this week. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so standing on the sidewalks is now illegal in Alberta, as I understand yeah. it. Yeah. Six, six months in prison. <laughs> yep. Cool. Yep. Yeah. No big deal. Yeah, for listeners who don't know, um, Alberta just made protesting illegal, question mark, which I think is unconstitutional or... Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, one of the problems with the law is that it can't be challenged until someone has standing to challenge it. So until someone is arrested for violating Bill 1, it can't really be challenged. And uh, yeah, the person who does that basically just has to be willing to eat the possibility that it is actually constitutional. So <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. Um, so yeah, you might not be seeing me on a bridge or you might, who knows if I do end up on a bridge, please donate to my bail fund. Depends how much Robbie wants to go to the Supreme court. Uh, I get to see so many of my old friends from debate. <laughs> well, uh, if anybody wants to, uh, follow us on Twitter, we're at pullback podcast. And if Robbie gets arrested, we'll for sure tweet about it. So, you know, keep, keep up to date with us there. <laughs> yep. Carbon offsets do include donating to bail funds for climate activists. <laughs> Robbie might directly need one of those. <laughs> I love that Kyla immediately is like armchair social media activism. That's what we're going to do for our friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Thanks. Thanks for uh, for being with us today, Robbie. And uh, and for all of your research, Kristen and, and Robbie, you guys both did a lot um, on this one. So I learned a lot. I learned more than I wanted to know. So thank you. <laughs> Crushed it. Yeah, crushed it. That was really horrifying. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>